I would have felt like such a little lost soul. I had no friends at that time. Nobody, I, I don't think they even realized the extent of trauma that I had just gone through knowing what had happened behind closed doors, like with my dad and Warren being reprimanded. They were just being told what kind of a horrible person I am. How did that meeting go with Warren and your father? Okay, leading up to this. So Monday comes around, I was a wreck, like, couldn't eat my lunch I brought to school. I was worried, sick. I had like three days to stew over this. So by the third day, I was just like, I just want to die. I just want to crawl in a hole. I don't want to talk about this. I don't want to face it. I was petrified of what was going to happen. So the instruction was after school, my second mom, we had another, she drove the kids to school and then drove them back while my mom stayed home with the little ones. So my ride essentially left. The whole school was gone. Like there wasn't anybody else there on the campus at all. I was alone in that parking lot waiting for my dad to drive across this valley to come and meet. It was sunset time. It was getting evening time. It was probably 630-ish, I'm guessing, around that time of night. My dad shows up, doesn't say a word to me. He just has that look of disappointment. And oh my gosh, you never forget it. Of just like being taken to the principal's office and your parents have to walk you in the door. Like you've done the most horrific thing, unforgivable. You're this horrible individual. Anyway, we get up to his office. And at the time, my dad had a lot to do with Warren. So they kind of conversed a little bit about some business stuff that they were doing because at that time they were really invested in the church to rewrite Uncle Roy's sermons and have them hardbound. They were in the yes. spiral bound books. I don't know if uh -huh. you remember some older copies of it. So they were transcribing those. And my dad actually helped that whole project to get them to where they could be printable because they needed to be retyped because the original ones were typed on an actual typewriter and there was a lot of typos and stuff. So they were just cleaning them up and making them a little bit more professional and more legible. So my dad had a lot of stuff to do with Warren at that time. And I just remember sitting there walking into his office. Dad closes the door. His office was the most eerie feeling. I hated it so bad. There was his desk. When you first walk into the door, through the door, his desk is facing the door to the room. And then there was a little chair off to the side and a little bookcase and then a couch along the other side of the wall. And I was instructed to sit on the couch and then the conversation started happening. I don't have a lot of the specific words that were said. I kind of think that trauma experience just really shut off all the words that were said other than just the feeling and the whole drawn out emotional shaming shift that happened throughout that whole time. And it went on for several hours. Like we got home probably 9 30, 10 that night. Oh my gosh. I didn't dare say a word. I couldn't say a word. There was 
it was just sit there and take it. I couldn't defend myself. Warren spoke most of the time and there was scriptures being read. There was harsh judgment of disappointment and lesson upon lesson of thieves and where they go and what happens and <sighs> drill it in, drill it in, drill it in. I cried so hard. My eyes were so swollen. I had <laughs> all this mucus running down my face. I did not even dare move off that couch to even get a freaking tissue. I could not move. I was just frozen on that couch. My dad not once stood up for me. And I don't think he really felt comfortable that he could. But looking back going, why didn't you stand up for me? Why didn't you say something? You know, like, wasn't the punishment enough just telling me don't do it again? I would have been glad to say okay. And that would have been enough. But no. Man. So we were there for a long time. And when... I had like <laughs> my snot running down past my chin and it was just hanging and I, I didn't even know what to do with it. I was just in absolute shock and like survival mode of just feeling the most horrific, unsafe feelings. I would never do that to any child. I can't. Anyway, so he saw me in the state that I was in. And he stood up from his desk and he grabbed the box of tissue that was on his desk, threw it at me and said, clean yourself up. Warren did that. And my dad just sat there. He didn't offer me a tissue. He didn't offer to, to reason. He didn't offer me to say what I wanted to say or if I had anything to say. It was just, you're going to sit wow. here and you're going to take it. Well, and most, most men were, even um, before Warren became the prophet, were afraid to stand up against him because of the, the amount of pull and the power that he had within the church. Right. And also he was the principal of the school. So, you know, supporting the principal and the way they wanted to reprimand or how to go about the punishments, right. you know? Oh, I, I saw that. Mm -hmm. I don't agree with it, but I saw it. And to understand that's just kind of how it went. So before we left, he told me that I would have to like, pay the price. Like basically this was going to be my punishment. So after all the words that were said and I was shunned and I was judged and guilted and shamed for several hours, then I was required to, I was told that the class would no longer do the play now. Wow. And they would be told why, um, because of me, because you know, one person can ruin it for everyone. And that, I was required to, my dad agreed, to go to a store and get two clocks. The biggest clock that we could find and one for my classroom. And the big clock would go in the hallway upstairs in the high school area because when we would come up on Fridays, all the students would line up and with their attitude and behaviors for the week. And would have to do a check-in. The whole school, well, the elementary part anyway, would line up classroom by classroom, would line up and go into his office and get his little WSJ signature on their attitude and behaviors. I have a stack wow. of them still I want to burn to check in with how you're doing, what your grades are, how you're doing in class. He would check on the students every single week. The reason for the clock, the, the significance or the 
what it represented would be it's time to be honest because I tried telling my story about why I did it and what I did. And that wasn't good enough. That wasn't the truth because I wanted to steal, right? I wanted to, you know, to be this horrible person, right? And then the clock for our classroom, I was to physically be the one to go into my classroom and replace the clock that was there. So the significance of me taking that ownership of removing the clock that was already there in the class and putting a new clock there. And it would have to stay there for the rest of the school year to remind me that it's time mm. to be honest. Wow. That was pretty hard for me because I didn't want to face my classroom. I didn't want to face my, my peers. I didn't want to have to talk to anybody else. I was already shamed and shunned and like all of the fear and the, the sorry, like I was horribly, <laughs> horrifyingly sorry. Like I just, I couldn't say it enough and I wouldn't be believed even if I tried. So my mom had to take a special trip and we went to a office supply store and bought the biggest clock we could get bigger than me at the time. And then a regular size clock to put in our classroom. I had to earn oh, the money wow. to replace those clocks to physically like put in the hours and earn that money for my dad that had to come out of his pocket to buy those clocks. So gave the clock to Warren and he hung the clock up in the hallway. So that I'll go back. I'm sorry. The clock in the hallway was so that when our class would go and line up and get our, our turn to go and see him at the end of the, the week, then I would see it and I would be reminded. So no matter where I was at school, Wow. I would always they, be reminded. They, they made this a very drug out long process, didn't they? My goodness. Yeah, Jeez. but that's not all. <sighs> um, so I went to the classroom, changed the clock, and my teacher was informed of the situation. She was actually one of my friends. Like she became a pretty good friend. She's a relative. She um through my grandma's side, and so we had a lot of the same family and I got to know her. And so we had, she was very nice and very kind. I still love her. She's, I, I imagine she's still a part of the community. I don't know where she's at today, but anyway, the students were told why. And the classroom was rearranged where all the students were arranged behind me and I was put front and center and nobody could oh sit God. by me for the rest of the school year. I was isolated in front and center with that clock in front of me. It had to be in a place where it would be right in front of me. So if I looked up at the chalkboard, it would be right there staring me in the face. Well, that day, then this was the next school day. So it hadn't even been a week since this had happened. This would have been on a Tuesday then. The jewelry Warren gave to my teacher and I was told that night that he reprimanded me, I was told that I would have to wear that jewelry for an entire day at school and I would not be able to take it off because if I like it that much, then I will definitely get a chance to wear it only. I'll get to wear it in front of everybody. So everybody oh will get gosh. to see who I am because those are the kinds of things that I want that I like. And that's who I am as a person. 
this this so is such BS. good information. Sorry to interrupt for just a second. I, I just need to point out that so no. many people wonder why why more people didn't try to stand up against Warren Jeffs when they saw him doing something they didn't agree with. And this just goes to show My this parents gives didn't. the context of why people were afraid to stand up against him. He was he would do things like this to make example of people, to make an example of someone just just over the smallest things like you're talking about. So, you know, imagine doing yeah. anyway, it's just a just very, very difficult to stand up against him in any aspect of any type of for any reason. Yeah, I didn't have that courage. I did not have the bravery to say I didn't agree or no. And I didn't have I didn't have a defiant bone in my body. Like I and just wasn't that kind of kid. Yeah. I was very right. gullible. I was naive. I was very a big people pleaser. I just I didn't question. I that wasn't who I was. And so after being isolated in the classroom and I have all these eyes on my shoulder staring me at the back of my head for the rest of the school year and I'm I'm being looked at from behind. I am being looked at from the front, from that clock, and also from my peers. I would have felt like such a little lost soul. I had no friends at that time. Nobody, I, I don't think they even realized the extent of trauma that I had just gone through. Knowing what had happened behind closed doors, like with my dad and Warren being reprimanded. They were just being told what kind of a horrible person I am and what bad things that I did. Who's going to question that? What fifth grader is going to say, why? What did you do? Why did you do it? There was no conversation with me. I lost a lot of friends. That rest of that school year sucked so bad. It was, it was awful. So that's not all. It's still, it's still going. Um, so after being segregated in the classroom, my teacher was given that jewelry and instructed to have me wear that jewelry for an entire day. And I could not take it off. I was not allowed to go to the bathroom for longer than five minutes at a time. And she had to stand at the door to give me privacy to go to the bathroom. And I had to leave that bathroom. No, she had a timer. She was instructed. So she was given instruction from Warren on how to handle this. She didn't agree with it, I believe. Like she was just like, this is, this is craziness. And I was only allowed two bathroom breaks that day. I couldn't do anything more. Like I didn't want to leave the room anyway. Like it was horrible. So I had to wear the snap on earrings, the bracelet, the rings, the necklace, all of it to do my schoolwork being taught. I had to keep up with the class. Well, it just so happened that that day was our home at cooking day. And we had to walk through the school and go to the kitchen where they did that. And a couple of Rulin's wives, Rulin Jeff's wives actually taught the class. I had to walk through the school where all the other students saw me and go and be a part of that class. Like I couldn't just like I begged my teacher, please don't make me go. I don't want to go. I was crying the whole day. I couldn't stop crying. 
And she was just like, I'm sorry. This, I, we have to do this. I'm sorry. And so she, she actually even put her arm around me and walked me through. She did, she didn't, she wasn't angry at me. She was very soft. Like she, I believe she felt sorry for me, but she didn't have enough support to even say enough is enough or no, I won't do that. You know, the kind of repercussions she would have been in for herself. I barely survived that hour. But for lunch, I wasn't allowed to eat lunch in my classroom by myself. I had to go outside, which the whole school did. They would go outside and everybody would go in their classroom sections on the lawn. And there would be people playing soccer and hopscotch. It would be like a free recess hour where the whole school would just take an hour to have lunch. And kids would sit around and talk and laugh and play. And I had to walk out that door. And so the entire school, the entire school saw me. And as I'm walking past the younger grades, I just remember specific faces. I guess people don't realize The amount of shame that comes from something that you have no control over. It's like being forced to walk through a valley of fire and you just have to endure it. And there's not a thing you can do about it. There's not one person there to say this isn't okay. And those faces are so burnt in my memory of seeing the laughing and the pointing and the judging and the (laughs) things weren't okay. And I look back now and realize just how depressed and low I was even just as a 12 year old and I didn't even have my mom to express empathy or compassion for what I had just experienced I took them off I was given permission to finally take them off And my ears were so freaking swollen from those dang snap-on earrings because (laughs) they'd never experienced anything on them before. (laughs) And they hurt. They hurt so bad. Well, the rest of the year kind of sucked. I don't remember a lot about it as far as, like, anything other than just how I felt emotionally. And there weren't a lot of friends after that. I... Looking back, I wonder about how they felt. Like, were they just, I mean, I'm sure there was a little initial judging on a, you know, like on their mental abilities of reasoning, not really knowing the full story of like just what had happened and to understand the whole story, but just what they were being told and what they were seeing. I wonder today, like, 
were, have they been living in fear of this example? I mean, like you can imagine of like experiencing someone, like if I was one of those students and someone had traded places with me and I was witnessing that happen, how would that go? Would I just be living in fear for, as an example, being someone being made an example of don't ever do that because that will happen or that kind of level of shaming and guilt will happen. Oh yes. Well, and shunning in general, when any group uses shunning, right? Like the FLDS uses shunning in so many different ways, but like you said, not only would they have the fear of being like you, but shunning also gives a very distinct idea of, I now have to fear being associated with that person because then what is that going to say about me? Right. So at 12 years old, Mm -hmm. it might not have been anything of, like you said, there might've been some initial judgment from the other kids, but more than that, were they worried that then if they hung out with you, they were going to be subjected to the same things or to the same shunning. Right. And that's, yeah, I would be that influence of, of doing those things. And yeah, (laughs) Absolutely. Full circle. Like just the level of being made an example of, of something so minute. It just baffles my mind to this day of how the crap did that even happen? How did it happen? Why did it happen? Why did it happen to me? Little old me, like I was not a problem child. This wasn't a common thing. Why did he choose to make such an example of me in that situation? He had a choice to handle it however he wanted to. And he took it to the full extreme. Well, and that's Warren Jeffs, right? Full extreme. I, yeah. That's I, Warren Jeffs. I think he looked Absolutely. for any opportunity to do this type of thing. Unfortunately, he made examples of mm-hmm. lots of people. And it's it's just heartbreaking because you also have to... I mean, I'm thinking about your story right now and you were made an example of something that you didn't even want. It's not like you were trying to rebel in some way. And therefore, because of your rebellion, you needed to be chastised and made an example of. You were so uncomfortable with what you were being told to do to begin with that you felt that you needed to take these things home in order to even work up the courage to wear them for one simple play, one part in a play. And it would have been right. what for half right. an hour. And so, and, and then, so you already felt bad about that. You didn't even feel comfortable wearing that stuff at all. And then you were just turned into this monster by Warren Jeffs because of, because of what he was telling you to do to, be, to begin with. And that's kind of what he continued to do forever though. Once he became prophet, he was doing the same thing. Men not even knowing what they had done wrong or being told that they had done something wrong, trying to follow Warren the best they could. Now we're sending you off. We're shunning you. Like he has that same pattern that continued Mm -hmm. even through him being a prophet. And like I said, shunning is one of those so many extreme small groups use shunning because it's so powerful. It's so awful in so many different ways, but it destroys people in multiple ways, emotionally, community wise, you take away people's community. That's one of the worst things that you can do to any person, let alone a poor child. But this is the same stuff that he did and he continued to do. And he continues to do now too. He shuns people. He puts them in the spotlight and paints them. However, he wants them to be painted as a warning sign, 
as a don't go near these people when they don't deserve any of it. Right. Yeah. Through this whole experience, like I look back thinking this could have been handled so much more gently, you know, in a, in a way that would be effective, you know, to have a stern conversation and say, you know, that wasn't okay. These are the reasons why I didn't commit adultery. I didn't kill someone. I, I'm damned if I do, damned if I don't type of situation. And I tried to make the best of it. And as my own maturity level at that time, trying to reason and just say, do your best, do it anyway. And tried so hard to just reason with that fear of just re-traumatizing myself over and over again and trying to convince and find a way to just do it anyway. There are some things that I feel like you don't realize like when you're young and you feel those emotions, those emotions are real, but I feel like it's not until you're a parent. And I don't know if this is the same for you. When you look Mm -hmm. at a 10 or a 12 year old kid and you're like, okay, before I thought this feels too harsh. This doesn't feel good. And then once you're a parent and you look back at the things you're like, okay, I now know that was absolutely absurd and completely unnecessary. And when you're young, sometimes you just take things because that's all you know, right? right. You just had to sit there crying because you knew you weren't allowed to move and you just have to endure it and you just have to get through it. And then as you get older and you see, okay, 12 years old is a child. That is a little child that should never have to go through things like that. And I know that I've definitely nowhere near to this extent, but there's definitely been things I've looked back in my life and been like, oh, the way this one thing was handled, I thought that I deserved it. Or I thought that I just had to deal with it. And, Mm -hmm. you know, at that point you feel like you're so grown up at whatever age or, okay, this is what I have to do. And then now that I'm an adult, I look back and think, oh my gosh, like, no, kids don't need to be going through those type of things. They don't need to be going through those type of uh, adults shouldn't be treating children that way, period. No. And I, I have a question um, based on what you just recently told us the story. It doesn't sound like at any point, please correct me if I'm wrong. At any point, someone said, why, why did you, why did you take these things? You know, try to understand where you're coming from. No, they just knew that I had a vain rebellious view. And I, that obviously if I want those, Oh yeah. Cause you don't get to ask the questions. Why? Right. That's just so bizarre to me. I mean, it, no. No. I think now one of my child, if one of my children were to do something that let's say it was something that in my mind was this awful thing, which in, of course in your mother's and your father's eye, it was this awful thing. I would like to think that the first thing I would say is why, why would you do something like this and try to understand where they're coming from and mm-hmm. your story it would make me want to do that even more to realize that sometimes it's hard to understand where someone's coming from unless you really try to put yourself in their shoes. Yeah. Well, even for like raising children, you know, I've, this story has been embedded in my mind and been somewhere somehow remind me of the story every single day since it happened. Like it's never left me. It's, it's completely consumed me to a point where I couldn't even tell my husband for wow. 15 years after I knew him. And that was even longer that I had experienced it. So I was 
12 when it happened. I got married when I was 18. And so from 18, 15 years plus, I couldn't even tell him that story. I couldn't. I couldn't talk about it. It was too much. It was, I didn't want to, I didn't want to relive it. I didn't want to bring it up. I didn't want to tell anybody. Just that level of fear is just incredible. Even though I may have been okay with telling him, you know, on some level of like, he's not going to judge me or condone me to what I did was wrong, you know, or bad. That makes me this person that I was being told that's who I was, but I was wow. burnt. I was in a place where not even feeling safe enough to talk about it was just over consuming I, too much. So another little, so kind of how it panned out. So after that school year, my dad's um, contract with Hydropack had come up. It was ending. And so he had something that he needed to find to do. So he was instructed by Rulin Jeffs to move his family south to Colorado City. And he was instructed to take on the Red Hills Oh, yeah. Very familiar. Here in town. <laughs> yeah. Quite an yes. iconic landmark in this town. So we sold our house and we moved in the summer. So we were two weeks late for the public school year. So I got thrown right in to public school sixth grade. Us kids oh, wow. had to go to school. So that's what I did. Which, which school was this? It's over by the um, the one over in the middle of town by the old candy shop. Okay, was it run by the by the FLDS Church? When you say public, no, it was it was the CCUSD, the Colorado City Unified District. Okay, I see. So that was before Warren took everyone out of public schools and yeah. made them go to homeschool. Okay. Yes, that was in ninety five. So yeah, so in during those days, it would have been a lot of people were still going to public school. Oh yeah, there was a lot of um, there was mm -hmm. apostates, <laughs> oh, yeah. people that lived over the hill mm -hmm. um, in Centennial that were going to school. Um, a lot of the ma majority of the students were part of the FLDS. There were combined teachers from the FLDS and also mm -hmm. from Centennial. So there was just kind of a a mix match. Everybody went to wow. public school. So. It was quite a mm -hmm. culture experience for me because I came from this area of, <laughs> I don't know, just a familiar way of teaching and things that we were learning. I had no, I had a lot of catching up to do with my peers because there was a lot that I didn't know. There was a lot that I wasn't taught. There was a lot that I was completely lost and I just had to run so hard and cram it all in and learn it as fast as I could. So the Alta Academy after all wasn't so great, huh? As far as the education? That was <laughs> that was a grand exit of the Alta Academy. I mean, like, I don't know that I, I dreaded at the end of that school year. It was before we learned that we were going to be moving south. I was petrified. I was begging already, do not mm. send me back to school. I won't go. I won't go back. I won't do it. I don't want to face my peers. I don't want to face the principal. I don't want to have anything okay. to do with it. 
and then I got my wish. You mentioned <laughs> earlier that in Northern Incendi area, you had your dream house. And so just to yeah. clarify, you were instructed to you and your family to move to Short Creek. How did that work as far as houses go? And did you get, did the church give you another house in Short Creek or how did that work out? So there was a family here in town, uh, a man that my dad was friends with, and he had kind of like a little casita mm. in his property. And it was an interesting setup, but we crammed our family in there. Oh, wow. We had 10 kids, 11, okay. 11 or 10 kids at that time. And two moms. You weren't given another dream house, it sounds like. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> it was flip-flop. I mean, we left this gorgeous, full-on, beautiful, gated wow. trees, shrubs, beautiful home. I mean, wow. just, oh, man. Anyway, no, the, it was a complete flip-flop. I mean, we lived in the creek. We walked outside in bare feet. We got stick burrs in our feet. Right. We had the red yeah, Very different. Had... I am very familiar with all of that. I, 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 I thought that sounds like my childhood. Wow. Right? <laughs> and, you know, we loved it, though, because we didn't have dirt in our yard mm -hmm. up there. We had a sandbox, right. barely if that. And the only kind of dirt that we really had was our garden that we had. Like, we didn't have an unfinished area in our yard that we could play in like that. Like everything was clean. Everything was landscaped. I have a question before we kind of go into more of, you know, finishing being raised in the crick. I like to always ask people, as certain things are happening in your youth and, you know, they take away your red dress and you're seeing the kind of shaming and the shunning and those type of things like, in the community from community and church leaders. Was there ever a point in your childhood where you thought, mm -hmm. I don't want to live this way forever? Was there ever a moment where you thought I might want to leave at some point or was it always still just sticking through to the end with the church? I was invested. I really thought that's where I wanted to be, what I wanted to do, who I was becoming. As a child, those belief systems were set in stone. They were there. I wanted it. I really did. And even though, you know, like said <laughs> experiences happened, I just tried to find a way to just block it out as much as possible. I didn't talk about it to anybody. I didn't, it didn't come up. My mom never brought it up that I remember. My dad never brought it up that I remember of asking me, you know, like, reliving it or reminding me or having another issue of now remember, you know, like this little devil on your shoulder trying to remind you of all the things that you've done wrong and to not ever do it like a live conscience there to remind you of all the horrible things that you've done. <laughs> Heaven forbid. So kind of finishing off the rest of this, it he just had it out for me, I guess. I just realized that he just would not let it go. Warren, he would not let this go. So when I left, uh, when the school year ended in fifth grade, then the clock stayed there. I didn't want it. I didn't ask to have it. I wasn't offered. I wasn't told to take it. I just, I left. It was like, leave dead dogs dead. Like, don't bug them. Don't bring them up. Don't bring them home. Don't want to have anything to do with it. Enough is enough. 
And so after our move, it wasn't very long after we moved down. And there was one Sunday morning and I had gotten up really early that morning and I went outside. We had some animals and I was taking care of them. And a big truck showed up, which was kind of odd in a way because we didn't have visitors on Sunday morning. You know, Sunday was a day of getting ourselves ready to go to church. And, you know, like it was family time and we didn't do a lot of visiting in the mornings. Like it was just, you get yourself ready to go to church, be ready. And so someone shows up and I recognize this truck and I was thinking, why are they here? And then I recognized the face. I don't know if I should say the name, but (laughs) um, this person we knew very intimately and he was a little errand boy for Warren. He did a lot of transporting back and forth from Salt Lake to the Crick, Colorado City. And he comes walking up and he has one hand behind his back and he walks up and he's like, hey, is your name Elise? I was like, you know who I am? Like, yeah. And he was like, he kind of had this little smirk on his face and he's like, I have something for you. I was like, why? And he kind of had this little wink in his eye and he pulls this black clock behind his back and he hands it to me and my heart, like my jaw dropped. I remember my, I thought I was having a heart attack. I thought you've got to be kidding me. Like, so, you know, you know, I didn't ask him. I just remember like, I was just stunned and shocked. Like, I, I don't, I don't want to touch it. It was like this wow <laughs> thing that had this evil attachment and like it, it's tainted. It's it, like, you don't touch it. You don't come near it. It's haunted. Like you just don't wow, go near it. Like so we're done. Cruel. Are you kidding me? And he hands it to me and he just acts like, take it. And I was just like, Oh, I can't tell him. No. I can't tell him, no, thank you. I didn't want to talk about it. I didn't want to ask him questions. I was just like, okay. And I turned it over. I just kind of looked at it. It was about, I don't know, this big, probably about a 10 inch clock, maybe 12 inches. It wasn't very big. And there was a little sticky note on the back, <laughs> handwritten by Warren. And it says in quotations, wow. remember it's time to be honest, signed WSG. Okay, this is just psycho at this point. Creepy. Like, you really need to follow a 12-year-old? I thought, yeah. I need to burn this thing. Like, I need to burn this thing. Like, I need to smash it. I need to get rid of it. Like, how? It's like playing Jumanji, you know? Like, these things just keep, like, you just have to go to the next level. You just have to keep playing through it. You just, things just keep happening. It's like, no, I left that back there for a reason. I don't want anything to do with this. Why? I mean, just the psychological BS that he had, the audacity to send it to me. Like, yeah, that's so, that is-, that is crazy to continue to psychologically, like psychologically torture a 12-year-old. I'm like, literally, I'm never oh, going to be able gosh. to live this down, ever. I'm never going to be able to get rid of this. I'm never going to be able to just say, okay, 
it's it's done like you can't just close the door on this it's never gonna die like this is gonna be it this is it i'm just gonna have to live this for the rest of my life it's a testament to his character today and the way that we've seen everything unfold since these days that you talk about where he just loves the control and he loves to he loves to just have his fingers in control of everything at all times. It's just, it's just insanity. It's insanity. Like to be, to even try to be able to, Oh, absolutely. If he's the principal of a school, like you don't have anything better to do with your time, your thought, your energy. I'm like little old me. Why, why are you so focused on me? It's like, you know, the wizard of Oz (laughs) where the crystal Uh ball and you're viewing, it's like, is he literally sitting at home? rubbing his crystal ball and following every move to know exactly when's the right moment to strike. Like how and why, why do, I mean, the morality of it is like, do you, I don't know if I can say this, but do you get off thinking this way? Does it really heighten your serotonin levels of you just gives you that gratification to torture people yeah and unfortunately we know that you aren't even the only person in that school that was being tortured at that time psychologically there was all sorts of things yeah that have come out about what was happening in that school and so to be able to yeah it just kind of proves to his mental insanity honestly for me to be able to be focused on hurting and psychologically torturing so many people at one time and to have like I said, you know that there was so much, who knows what else was going on. I mean, we've heard of other things that have gone on. Now you're another person. Yeah. Who knows what was going on within the church, within his own family, we know what was going on. So the capacity to just be that evil to that many people all at the same time under the guise of being the most amazing person. That's the point I wanted to make is while all this was happening, right? I'm over here and so many other people are over here with the highest Mm -hmm. respect and love for Warren Jeffs because we only knew of this so-called amazing, this godlike figure that could do no wrong. And so there's this piece of me that, well, I'm first off, I'll say I'm so grateful that I didn't deal directly with him that often. I'm so grateful that I didn't. So many people had all of these types of experiences with him. But there's there's this other little piece of me that wishes that I had known something. I had known a little bit more of who he actually was to, I don't know, try to stand up and do something about it. I probably would have been forced out of the community immediately if I had tried, but at least I would have tried. I mean, this is just so much that I didn't know about. I guess one of the biggest things that I've just really struggled with ever since then on a public level, I mean, to work through the idea of just being brave to even just go into public. You remember when the Salt Lakers were instructed to move down just before the 2002 Olympics. So I was actually really glad that a lot of the community where I had moved from (laughs) up north and moving south had no idea of my experience. So it was like a new start. And I was trying to be okay with that. Well, years and years later, the Lakers come down. 
And it's like I was, it's like PTSD hit. And all of a sudden, these people that I remember, all eyes are on me. I was put back in that 12-year-old self mindset and trauma that it was like walking through that parking lot again when I went to go have lunch and everybody's just looking at me. And I struggled so hard to not think of that experience when I would see like my past peers, other students that were in Alta Academy at that time that I was, you know, remembering their faces like burned into my brain and wanting to know what did they think happened? Like, how do they feel about it? What were they being told? How do they feel about it now? Do they even remember? How do my peers that were in that classroom with me going through all of that, did they continue to live in fear because of that experience? How do they feel? I have a lot of empathy for them because I put myself in traded positions, you know, of that viewpoint of witnessing that going down, just how would I have felt, you know, and I have not been able to even have the courage or even (laughs) the brave, the braveness to even just reach out and say, Hey, you know, like how, how do you reach out to someone (laughs) and say, do you remember when this happened? You know, this was my experience. Like how, mm, you can't just start with, do you remember? There's a lot that's gone down. Everybody's had a list of PTSD yeah. experiences since then. And that's probably one of the least things on their list that mm-hmm. they're traumatized with up to current date. You know, right. I'm not saying that it wasn't traumatizing, but I have a lot of empathy yeah. for yeah. everyone going oh, through man. that. It's just, I'm so grateful you shared. I, I, I can only imagine the courage that it, must take to share something like this publicly that was literally life altering and changing for you. And I just want to thank you for the courage that you have in, in sharing this. And I'm hoping that there are people out there today that maybe, that maybe were there during those times and didn't have any idea of the truth, what was actually going on, what was behind it all. And maybe all of these years they have wondered And just never had the courage to ask why. And, you know, I, I wouldn't be opposed to people reaching out and saying, Hey, do you want to have a conversation about it? This is what I remember. And I have never had an opportunity to even share my side of it. I've never been okay with sharing it. I've not been okay and felt safe enough to say, here's my story. Mm -hmm. This is what happened. But nobody's asked me. Not one person has brought it up to me. So I have a lot of questions. One, it's kind of backtracking a little bit, but the reason why I think a lot of it has just really been hard on me to imagine the level of, maybe he just Warren himself felt the need to just single me out was that our family did have a lot to do with Warren's family and Roland Jeff's family. My dad was a personal pilot for Ruin Jeff's for four years. So he flew him from the Salt Lake Valley to the Crick or from Salt Lake Valley to Canada, where the other group was up there in Creston. So we had a lot to do with Uncle Ruin's family and Warren's family. We were 
We took a lot of personal hikes. We went on family outings. We even went camping like up in up by Bear Lake and Moon Lake. We drove to Canada with Warren's family. I personally got to ride with his family up there while my dad flew the Prophet Ruin at the time. Wow. Got to take a trip up there. A lot of family reunions, like with the steed reunions and stuff that they had up in Salt Lake. All the steeds would show up and it was a big, a big event, like an all, all day thing at the Woodruff Steeds oh, uh, wow. yeah. home there in Salt Lake. Um, that's who okay. my grandma's dad is. Wow. So you are very so, much involved with the Jeffs family yeah. in many more aspects of oh, yeah. school. My second mom was actually a piano teacher. She went to um, uh, oh, wow. Suzuki Institute wow. and taught the Suzuki method. And she had a very accredited piano teacher that she went and had some serious piano lessons. And she taught for a lot of the people up there in Salt Lake. And she actually taught hmm. a few of Ruin's wives. So when we would have piano recitals, the Prophet Ruin would come to our home wow. and we wow. would perform. <laughs> I was also taught by her as well. So, um, yeah, we had a lot of involvement with, like, we'd have adults show up and Warren and his wives would show up and they would have adult dinners where us kids would have to go down to the basement and spend our evening. And they would be upstairs partying and having leg wrestles with the men together. I have, I have pictures of Warren and a few other men doing leg wrestles. Interesting. So was, wow. was Ruin still the prophet when you were married? I know that's jumping ahead a little bit through your teenage years, yes. but here, here, let me show you really quick. So you were 18, you said. Yeah. So I see, kind of I see, Sorry. let's see here. Oh, there we go. Though. Okay. So yeah, Ruin there we go. And you, okay. I see you there now. Okay. And Ruin Jeffs is sitting down in his chair at this yeah. point. He wasn't very good at standing. Yeah, right there. No, he was sick. Okay. So this was in the year 2000, October of 2000. And I'll show you one more just so that you can get a. I love so much that you have pictures. Picture. You don't even know. I'm yes. like, oh, it makes me so happy that somebody still has pictures. I wish I did. Uh, I'm going to oh, yeah. angle it a little bit so oh, you can see. Warren and oh, man. Ruin. And let's see, who's the other one? I don't know if you can see that Whoa. one a little bit better. The so there's my ex and his dad, who is Ron Barlow. So there's Lewis Barlow, who is my ex's grandfather. And then there's Warren on the other yeah. side next to Wow. Warren. Okay. So Ruland Jeffs was still alive and you were 18. Yeah. Ruland didn't die for two more years. So he died September 8th okay. of 2002. This was October. But you had said as a teenager, like you knew that this was the life, the faith that you wanted to continue on with. What was it like getting the call or getting prepared? Did you know that marriage was coming? Did you know who you were going to be assigned to very early on? Can you give a little bit of, we don't have very many opportunities to hear like the woman's perspective of what it's like yeah. in your teenagers prepping for marriage and getting that call. So... I had just turned 18. Yes, I wanted to be married. And I honestly had, was preparing myself to be either a single wife or a plural wife. 
I was okay with either. I didn't want to marry an old man. I knew I did. I knew that. Yeah. Did you ever have a number? Did you ever have a number that you were like hoping for? Like, I hope I'm not wife number. Okay. Second or third, honestly. I didn't want anything more than that. Okay. I didn't want to be yeah. the bottom. Of the so either second or third or first, right? <laughs> yeah. Like essentially, I guess my okay. first choice would, I would want to be the first wife just because, uh, I didn't want to have, <laughs> I wanted to be able to experience it for real and not just have so much involvement. Like I, I saw my mom's, you know, involvement and how that went down. And I didn't ever get to see my mom being, I don't remember very much of her growing up of what it was like to just be my mom and dad. And so thinking that being married to a single, <laughs> as a single wife, okay, that would be optimum for sure. But I was preparing myself, obviously because that's what we were being raised to be. So me being the oldest daughter in the family, I did a lot of the raising of the kids, potty training, feeding, clothing, tending, you name it. I, I did it all. There was a lot of, of pressure on me as the example, the oldest and the oldest daughter. It's just astronomical. And I would never want to do that to my kids. I did do that for a time <laughs> just because that's what I knew. But looking back, like if I could do it over again, I, I wouldn't put that kind of pressure on them. That's just not a way to live. It's not a way to grow up. No child should ever have to have right. that much pressure to be an adult, but not have the adult privileges, you know, like being claimed to have as much or more than adult does and having no authority okay. to say that they want to or not. I think the skills have really helped me though. Like having that early on set of yeah. responsibility and then being married and being able to just transition and taking that on. But I didn't really get <laughs> to be a teenager. I didn't get to be, I mean, I had a good childhood, like younger years because I was allowed to, but things changed in the church. And so a lot more responsibility was being put on the young girls because just before I moved down. So in 94, 95, I can't remember which year now, those home economic tapes were being passed around and they were being recorded and people were getting the whole set of like 15 tapes and each side you know, he had an A, side A and side B, and you'd have to listen to those tapes. Was that just for the women, those tapes? They were encouraged mostly for the women, but it wasn't like saying the men or the boys can't hear it because there were some things that were intentional for the men to hear, or at least to mm -hmm. understand what the women are being taught so that they can understand, you know, like how it works and right. what they're being trained to do and be and how then... I guess to have a perspective of that. It wasn't something that I remember in my family or anybody else that I remember saying that the boys or the men can't listen to them. Okay. That makes sense because I, I never heard them. Didn't really even know about them. What I was told about them later from my sisters is that they were required to listen to these. And us as young boys, we would hear how we were supposed to treat women and our future wives and all of that from the priesthood meetings that we would attend. Yeah. I was going to say, I think 
in exchange for those home economic tapes, the men yes. or the boys had priesthood meeting. So the women would push record or push replay. <laughs> the men yes. would hear it every month, you know, like mm -hmm. getting their training that way through all their priesthood okay. levels of, you know, so, whatever. Exactly. Which I never graduated very far. I guess I was too, too rebellious. I don't know. I know. I know. <laughs> oh, I, boy. I became a deacon <laughs> and I left when I, I, you become a deacon when you turn oh, yeah? 12 and I became a deacon in the priesthood. And let's just say when I left the church at age 18, I was still a deacon. So that was how far I progressed. Uh, I always wanted a bad boy. <laughs> well, good for you. <laughs> yeah. So through these tapes, you were pretty well educated in the eyes of the church anyway on how you were to be a wife. <sighs> that voice, I can never erase it out of my mind. So freaking monotone. I hated it so bad. And I, tr I tr tried. I struggled. I pushed myself to just listen to it and just hear the words more than anything but that voice. But see, it was very triggering to me because I had had this really negative experience with him. I didn't trust him. I didn't like him. I didn't want to hear his voice every day. I was trying to get him out of my mind. I didn't want to put him in my mind. I hated it. It was hard. It felt like living it over and over and over again. It was like, I'm never going to live this down. I'm never going to get rid of this. And he was, he was everywhere too. I mean, you had this awful experience with him. Now he's preaching at the pulpit. He's in charge of a lot of church meetings. You're listening to his tapes. He's, his voice is singing a lot of the songs that we were supposed to listen to and had to listen to in the oh. church. And so, you know what I mean? If it's his voice that was triggering to you, it was everywhere. You would, I would wake up in the morning. We had an intercom in our house where we could just pick up the phone, push a button, and it, we had speakers oh, yeah. throughout the house to call for dinner or whatever. And I would wake up in the morning mm -hmm. to Warren Jeff's voice singing throughout our house because oh. one of the... Okay, so you experienced that too. Thing. Oh. Yeah, the people would wake up, like that would be the wake-up call. You would hear Warren's voice either singing a song or hearing a home ec tape or something or some sermon or some teaching or something. It's like, who wants to wake up to that? Well, when Sam and I were dating, yeah. we were in his car and I was going through his CDs because, you know, back when you used to have the things of CDs in your car. And oh, so I'm going through. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I had, so I, I saw him and I was like, is this really Warren Jeff? He's like, yeah. And so I stuck it in. I couldn't even last half a song. I was like, even from an outsider's perspective, even if you don't know who Warren just is, it just sounds creepy. Like there's yes. no way around it. It just sounds creepy. I was like, yeah, we're never playing that again. Put it back into the sleeve and here you go. But for me, I didn't have this traumatic experience with him. So as a young boy growing up, uh, listening to his voice and his songs on our way to work and different things like that. It was so, I guess you could say spiritual for me. I felt like it was so amazing. He was this perfect man and uh, the amount of influence. I really fought it. I, I tried so hard to convince myself to just be like, he is being posed as, you know, this is, this is the right way that it's going to go. This is the person you're going to have to find a way to forgive. You're going to have to find a way. Like if I could only describe the level 
and try because the whole community is seeing and being told and believe that this person can do no wrong. He is literally God to us. He is our channel of connection of who we are becoming and where we're going and how we're living, how you're raising your children. It's not something you just get over. It's not something that you can just say, eh, you know, we'll just, we'll scratch it out and say, okay, we're done. No, it, it goes to a level where to the deep, dark dungeon of your soul. (laughs) It's a very, very scary, but sacred place that you hold inside. He really messed it for me. I'm like, I really, I really have a hard time not resenting him. I don't want it to burn a hole in my soul where I can't just move on and just be able to just be who I need to be without it obstructing and getting in the way and controlling all of that growth. It's just, it's hard. So hard. When you say that you got married in 2000, it was before Rulin had passed away, but the pictures are showing he was sitting. We had a lot of people Mm -hmm. kind of wonder whether or not it was actually Rulin who was arranging marriages at that time, or if it was Warren. Do you feel like Warren arranged your marriage? I believe he did. Um, so Rulin was being, and he was sick and there was a lot of appointments, um, being diverted to Warren's authority or he was following up with people saying, you know, father's not well, whatever the reason was like there, he may have been there to witness it or be in the same room, but you couldn't just contact Rulin like you used to. Like you couldn't just get through to call and get, you know, permission for something or a question that you have or want to just come to check in and get some counsel, whatever it was. And then when, because when the Jeffs moved down, when the essentially from Salt Lake Valley, all of the Salt Lakers, they moved down that quickly changed. So that was in 2002. I got married in 2000 and October of 2000, I was 18 years old and four days when I got married. So I was 18 and he was 20. Okay. So not too big of an age gap. I mean, relatively in the FLDS, that's very small. I understand the real world, like that five year difference people could say, but within the FLDS, at least he was a young man. So you were his first wife. Yes. He was young. Okay. Um, Yes, we only knew each other for less than 24 hours before we were married. Wow. You probably had the traditional FLDS dating experience beforehand where you saw him once on the other side of the meeting house in some community church. (laughs) And uh, that was your dating experience. (laughs) (laughs) We we knew of him, but we did not know him. What was it like getting that call? Were you excited? Were you nervous? Were you happy? Were you sad? You want to take a guess? All of the above. (laughs) Very, very intimidating. Very scary. Very, like, happy, sad, anxious. Yeah. Angry. (laughs) Like, all your emotions just hit like a roller coaster. Um, Oh, so much anxiety. So much. My dad actually got the call. I was with him. And it was Ruin. It was actually Ruin that called and said... Oh. Uh, he actually said my name wrong. <laughs> my name was 
Alisa, he called me. Alisa. Um, anyway, that they had, that he had a man for me and that he would be calling to call my dad to arrange some meetup or something like that. There was just saying, it's going to happen tomorrow at this time. Goodbye. <laughs> that was it. And kind of happened the same way to the one I married. And he, it was basically confirm, is this so-and-so? Yes. And knowing that you get that call, like, you answer. You yeah. don't you say, yeah. yes, sir. <laughs> um, and saying, well, there's a lady for you. This is her name. Her dad is so-and-so. See you tomorrow okay. at such and so such o'clock. And then hang up. Like, if you don't get <laughs> that information, you're just up a creek. Yeah. <laughs> up a creek in the creek. <laughs> it was like a little game to them, I think, where they were just like, I wonder. Like, they hang up the phone. You imagine going... See, like Russian roulette of like, let's see who actually follows through or is really good at listening. And maybe they pick up the wrong person. And well, it's like this little game. Wrong of, person at the wrong time. They're like, you imagine? for the 10 o'clock slot. Okay, you go to that guy. Oh. <laughs> it's like, you have the wrong person. Go try again and come back. We joke about it now, but... And rightfully so. The sad part about all of this is the fact that that is the way they did it. They just quick, quick, quick phone call, boom, 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 oh, playing yeah. this game of placing everyone together. And you saw that number on caller exactly. ID. You knew exactly who it was, and you answered. And if you didn't answer, well, <laughs> well, and the fact that they just make that quick call and they are changing a person's life forever exactly. and in their beliefs for all of eternity. Like this is an eternal. That yeah. was kind of what you waited for. You were waiting. It was always talked about like right. waiting for the call. Right. That's what they, that's what it was talked about. It was like, you didn't get the call yet. Right. I was turned in. So it was, it was typically a something that not every family, but depending on what the head of household or the father of the family felt like that's how they wanted to go about it with uh, their daughters being married or, you know, like how that went and encouraging their sons to check in with their priesthood head when they became an elder, you know, when they're of age to get placed, you know, to hold the Melchizedek priesthood, to um, have a family, you know, to have that level of authority, a priesthood to carry on the yeah. forevermores. The women were typically, the girls were typically turned in and put in uncle Ruland's little Ugh, black book makes me feel what they called it of uh he had this little black pocketbook thing where he kept people's names in it and it was when the girls were being kind of given a recommend from their father to say i think she's ready and put her in that and was just like okay let us know yeah. when you feel inspired of who they belong to and let us know when they should move on because I feel like she's ready. Uh, at what age did your father? I was 17 because I got turned in August of 2000 and I got married huh. in the middle oh. of October. So I had just turned 18. You have to wonder how much pressure the fathers have, feel, uh, you know, the need to turn their daughters in. Mm -hmm at a certain age or they could get in trouble with the church if they don't. I, I wonder. And I was the first one. 
like my dad had never experienced that before. I was his oldest daughter. So it was kind of like a trial and error thing, like test run of how we go about this and how he felt inspired to. I kind of was putting the pressure on him, though, because I had a lot of friends that were getting married, you know, 15, 16. That's what I was going to ask is if like, does it make a father look look a certain way or look better if he has prepared his daughter younger? Like, is there anything like that? Or, or do you think it's like I you said, know. more of the daughter saying I'm ready. So I want to, I'm sure it was different in every experience. At least I imagine you could attest to this, but I know that my sisters, to my knowledge, they weren't really prepared, at least a couple of them when they got the call and they were, they were called by my father into a room and they had a, talk and they came out blushing red face completely crying their (laughs) eyes out and you knew exactly what was happening one of my sisters was very young too two of my sisters got married at the same time one i believe was 18 and the other one was a lot young actually no i think both of them were well under 18 years old didn't you have a sister that married warren so i have a sister that married okay I was younger for that one, but yes, I believe she was 18 or 19 though. So she I was remember that. a little When bit. he was 80. Yes. Rulin was 80. So yeah, it was so interesting though, because in my mind and in all of my family's minds, they, we were so excited for our sister and our daughter to marry. Yeah. To marry into the Jeff family was just the biggest honor you could get. Yeah. It was a big deal. So I got the call and (laughs) I was with my dad. I had some siblings that were there doing an errand for him and they were sent home. And he asked me, he got, he he told him I was standing there when he got the call about me. And he just kind of looked at me like, it's happening. Like, this is exciting. And I'm just like, (laughs) I don't know what to do with all of this. Okay. And he's like, well, do you want to ride home with me? Cause he was working in St. George. He had a job there. And so we had a little bit of time that we could, he was like, I would love to spend, you know, our last wow. hours <laughs> with each other. And, you know, if you have any questions and so I rode home with him, with him, it was just him and I, and while I was waiting in the car for him, he was speaking with a, a customer he was out of the vehicle, then his phone rang. And he, before he got out of the car, he said, if the phone rings, answer it. And I was like, no, no, (laughs) you're kidding me. He just kind of was like a little, he was just like, I'm testing you. Like, I want you to answer the phone. I was like, no, not going to do that. Well, guess what? He called and the curiosity got the best of me. So I answered (laughs) And it was my person that I was going to get married to. And he's like, I'm looking for, said my dad's name. And I'm like, he's busy right now. Can I take a message? And he was like, "Um, (laughs) no, (laughs) I'll try back later. I'm like, all right, you can call back in, you know, so much time. Like he'll be available. He's just busy at the moment. He's like, okay, bye. Later on, when we talked about it, he said, I knew that was you. <laughs> he didn't know me at all, oh, but he just put the two and two together. So when when you got the call 
and you were told who you were to marry, were you shown a picture or just given a name? What was that? I was just given a name of, okay. of the person I was marrying. So you had no idea what he looked like until you got there to marry him. I act. So part of this story is a week before we got the call, me and my cousin went on a Sunday walk, which was a very typical thing. Everybody rode bikes and went on Sunday drives. The whole community was just driving all over, go through the zoo, through the creek and up to the reservoirs and to the station for ice cream and all of that. We went on a Sunday walk and we went to the station, but see at the time, fast forward after my dad had been in charge or taking care of the ownership of the gas station there. So Red Hills, another person bought it. It was changed over um, ownership and was passed around to a few different people. Well, guess what? It was his dad (laughs) that had, that was in charge of the station at the time, the gas station. Well, the person that I was marrying was actually working the till that Sunday. And I didn't know his name, but I remember his face. And my cousin and I, we went to the cooler, got ourselves a drink and went to the till. And there was something, this was like one of my, like an inspirational story of like those light bulbs went off. And for whatever reason, it was just like one of those things put on the shelf. Like I, when he looked at me, there was something that happened. I remembered his face. I remembered what his eyes looked like. And I was like, why am I feeling this way? Like, uh, uh-uh, no. And I didn't there say anything to my cousin about it. And cause I was like, that's just, no, we're not allowed to feel that way. We're not allowed to talk like that. We don't, nope, not doing it. And so a week later, get the call. And my dad was like, so-and-so's son, so-and-so's son. Do you know who he is? And all of a sudden the light bulb turned on and I was like, oh, oh I know who it is. And my dad didn't know who it was. And I was like, yeah, I saw him at the station. He was working the till last week. And he was like, oh, because I don't even know who it is. So you had this feeling that maybe there was a connection there. Put the two, and two together. Interesting. Yeah. It was really odd. Hmm. It was really odd. So... My dad and I drove all the rest of the way home. And when we got back into town, then my husband called my dad again and said, this is so-and-so. I've been instructed to marry your daughter. May I? You don't know who I am. You don't know anything about me. May I have your daughter shot in marriage? I've been told to come and gather up your daughter and marry her. Can I? And my dad had a little fun with that. And Made him feel real uncomfortable. As all dads should, right? (laughs) (laughs) He was having fun with it. It was his highlight. He was looking forward to in life, I think. (laughs) Giving a a young boy a hard time. Um, Like, sure, you can marry my daughter. No. I'm just like (laughs) trying that on with uh, some kid that he doesn't even know. He doesn't know his face. He only knows his name. He knows his dad. But he doesn't know this person and going to entrust someone to just come pick up his daughter and marry her. Like, uh. Yeah, we got a little meet and greet to happen. So he said, I'm wondering if I can come and pick her up and bring her over to my family so she can meet them. 
And he was like, absolutely. So we got everything, the house put in order and everybody was running <laughs> like chickens and there was a lot of craziness and I was about to throw up. I was so anxious and just like, I don't know how I'm going to do this. This is, this is crazy. I can't believe this is actually happening. And he showed up and sat by my dad and he had this really nice watch on, but it was a little bit big for his wrist. And he sat with his legs, his one leg across the other knee and he had his hand rested on it and he was just shaking and the room was quiet and all you could hear was his watch oh just word. rattling my dad thought that was he went with that and raised That's all so kinds funny. of pain with him <laughs> embarrassed him anyway he visited with my family for a little while and then got permission to take me with him to his family to see them and his dad was a trucker so he wasn't in town yet but he was on his way he would be in in town in time so i met the rest of his family other than his dad that first night his family they had two moms and his mom had 12 children and he's also the second oldest of his family and um, his other mom had two children with okay. his dad it was a good meet and greet. Like it was very oh, yeah. awkward. Obviously I didn't know these people. I was very scared. Didn't know how to act. Didn't know what kinds of questions to ask. Didn't know what to say. The room was just so awkward, so uh, awkward, but everybody's yeah, so happy yeah. at the same time. Anyway. So he drops me back off at home and I didn't sleep. I did not sleep at all. And he went the next morning. His dad gave him an allowance. <laughs> no, just kidding. He gave him an advance from work and said, go get some things that you need. And he was like, I need a ring. So he went to the mall <laughs> without me and picked out a ring and guessed the size. And it was perfect. I'm like, how did you do that? Like I tried it on. I was like, you already sized it? And he's like, yeah, I, after the wedding and everything, then he gave me the ring because <clears throat> there's no ring in the ceremony. Right. And I had a, a question about the, the ring because you would see throughout the community, some women would wear rings, some would not. It didn't seem like it was an, yeah. really that important. It wasn't, it wasn't mm -hmm. a part of the ceremony. It's not like a traditional wedding. It's all spiritual. It's your endowments. It's your, you know, it's the commitments and the things. Yeah. Of all of the, you hold your hand a certain way and then all of this <laughs> gibberish happens. And then wow, you're married. Give a kiss if you want. Do they call it an endowment that you go through? It's a ceiling. It's a ceiling. Marriage ceiling. Okay. That's, that and was the that, common of course, thing. They're claiming that they're sealing you for all time and eternity. And right. So you make a commitment. You see, you yeah. talk about it as a secret handshake of some kind. You mean you and your husband, right? You two hold hands a certain way. And mm -hmm. okay. Yeah. And then you make commitments yep. to each other and probably to the church and God. Well, we don't get a part in it. They just voice it for you and you agree with it. Like you, Oh. Yes, I do. I you mean, say, you say yes, yes you or I do okay. or whatever. I whatever you agree 
whatever your wording is to agree with the commitment that you're making. Okay. okay. Interesting. Yeah. That's the same as the LDS. Yeah. That's very similar. It sounds like. What about uh, attendees? Who else was allowed to come to your wedding? So at that time, there were some family that was allowed to be there. So my whole family was invited, but my parents were like, no little tiny ones, like ones that are old enough to behave, ones that can, you know, even understand what's going on and not have to tend because they wanted yeah. to be a part of it and be, you know, respectful and quiet and sincere and reverent and all that stuff. You know, it's a serious, right. happy, joyous yeah. experience. So we're not going right. to bring crazy babies and crying kids. And no, it's just not what you do. So a majority of my family mm. did go. There was only a few, maybe five kids that didn't go. And so before the ceremony, my husband asked my dad, would it be okay if I picked her up to go to the ceremony rather than me ride with my family? And he was like, absolutely. So he showed up a little bit before the ceremony and we drove together up there and then our families met shortly afterwards and there were a lot of other ceremonies going on at the same time it was like literally pushing people through so there was like one room was filled with filled with a wedding that had just happened and then wow. a room that was waiting to happen <laughs> that sounds just like our temple marriage honestly it's like a whole bunch of couples lined up and you go and it's like you have a very specific timetable. So, speaking of temples and, and whatnot, so obviously the yep. FLDS at that time had no yep. temple. So where were you married?